It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. You know, humans are, we're a funny bunch. We tend to think that if we cannot observe something, we cannot perceive something, it doesn't exist. Compared with our cousins on the tree of life, humans are relatively poor listeners. A lot of the sound of nature happens in the high ultrasonic. So that's the realm of bats and dolphins and some whales and many rodents and even some of our primate cousins. At the other end, below the low end of our hearing range, is the infrasound. Those, those are long, slow sound waves that are so powerful they can travel through soil and stone, even buildings. That is the realm of elephants and whales, but also thunder and tornadoes, calving glaciers make infrasound. Animals can hear many of these sounds, but we cannot. That's Karen Bacher. She's written a remarkable book called The Sounds of Life. It explores the messages exchanged by other living things that we're oblivious of. But more than that, her book also tells the stories of researchers who are using the sounds of life to explore ecosystems and even to repair them when they're damaged. And she talked with me about how artificial intelligence may soon lead to our being able to literally converse with other animals. I'm really looking forward to this conversation with you because your wonderful book surprised me with stuff I didn't know on just about every page, and some pages every paragraph. That's a testament to the countless hours that researchers have spent. I interviewed dozens of researchers and must have read 2,000 academic articles in the seven years it took me to write this book. So these are amazing discoveries by scientific heroes, really, those stories. The enormity of the number of life sounds we don't hear is really amazing. They, either the sounds are too low or too high. Too low is infrasonic and too high is ultrasonic. Is that right? That's right. So compared with our cousins on the tree of life, humans are relatively poor listeners. A lot of the sound of nature happens in the high ultrasonic at frequencies too high for us to hear. So that's the realm of 
bats and dolphins and some whales and many rodents and even some of our primate cousins like tarsiers. At the other end, below the low end of our hearing range, is the infrasound. Those, those are long, slow sound waves that are so powerful they can travel through soil and stone, even buildings. That is the realm of elephants and whales, but also thunder and tornadoes, calving glaciers make infrasound, even the planet itself. The a planet has a heartbeat that is made by ocean waves crashing over continental shelves. And if you could hear that, it would literally sound like the drumming heartbeat of our planet. Animals can hear many of these sounds, but we cannot. One of the things that really surprised me was the idea that plants are making sounds as well and apparently hearing them. Indeed. And it is pretty astounding to think that any creature without ears can hear, but many can't. You know, humans are, we're a funny bunch. We tend to think that if we cannot observe something, we cannot perceive something, it doesn't exist. So we haven't gone looking for these things, but many plants can sense sound. I'll give a couple cool experiments as examples. In one experiment, Heidi Apple, who's an ecologist at the University of Toledo, took a a very banal plant, uh, a model organism used in biology called Aridopsis taliana, and she did a playback experiment with this plant. She was looking out for defense chemicals that are released by plants in response to stress. And when she played white noise or the sound of rain, the plants didn't respond. But when she played the sounds of insects chewing on leaves, the plants released these biochemicals, these defensive chemicals. Now, she did a further experiment where she played two different sounds of insects chewing on leaves. One of the insects was a predator of this plant. The other recording was of an insect chewing on leaves, but it wasn't an insect that was a predator of this particular plant species. And guess what? The defensive chemicals were released only in response to the insect that was actually a predator. Wow, so that's very discreet hearing. Very, very precise and accurate and nuanced. Now, these plants, like many plants, have little... Uh, hairs all over the outside of their leaves called trichomes. And those are much like the cilia in your ears. The little hairs vibrating in your ears are what enable you to hear the sounds I'm making. Similarly, the little hairs on the plants are vibrating. And through a process we don't fully understand, mechanoreception, you know, they're vibrating in response to the particle motion of the sound in the air. It's triggering a response in the plants. And scientists have found other responses, not just defensive chemicals, but even rapid expression of genes in response to certain sounds. And I might add, this means plants can hear with their entire bodies. They're exquisitely attuned to sound much more than we are. Mm. That reminds me a little bit of the pea plant roots that you talk about that grow toward the sound of running water, which is a really important thing to be able to hear if you're a root and there's not much water around. Yeah, so that's a fascinating set of experiments done by Monica Gagliano, who's now in Australia and directs a lab on biological intelligence. So what she did is, again, another animal experiment, classic protocol, a maze. She put pea seedlings in soil There was a maze under the roots in the soil. 
And there were different sounds in different parts of the maze. And what happened is the pea roots didn't grow towards the white noise. They grew towards the sound of running water. And it was just the sound of water. There was no moisture gradient. So somehow the roots are able to sense the sound of water and grow towards it. Obviously advantageous if if you're looking for water. Let me just back up one moment and, and make a general comment on sound as a universal and fundamental form of transmitting energy. If you think about it from an evolutionary perspective, of course it makes sense for organisms to listen for sound. They want to know where predators are. They might help them find their next meal. But why would they emit sound? We're not fully, fully sure why, but let me give you some examples where we have answered that question. Hmm. In the case of coral reefs, coral emits a very, very uh, fine ultrasound and a narrow band of frequencies. And the coral tend to do that more at night and more on the full moon. It's well known in science that coral reefs spawn on the full moon. They're highly, we don't know why, but they're highly seasonally attuned. And these mass spawning events that are like great underwater um you know, fireworks. They're full of color and these mass spawning events where millions of coral larvae are released and they're washed out into the ocean. Now, the assumption was because coral larvae are microscopic blobs, basically, with no arms, legs, or ears, the assumption was for a long time, they just float around, hapless little things pushed around by the wind, the waves, the currents, and eventually they get pushed back to a reef somewhere and they settle. However, scientists have recently done experiments that demonstrate that coral larvae can hear the sound of healthy reefs. They distinguish between the sound of healthy and unhealthy reefs. Hmm. Moreover, they can distinguish the sound of their home reef. You can put them in something called choice chambers. They're like mazes. And the coral will pick the little path that leads to their preferred sound, the recording of their home reef. So we don't know how, but the coral larvae, when they are born, are imprinting on the sound of their home reef, like a coral lullaby. They get washed out to sea for weeks or months. And then over the miles, they somehow, with their little cilia, swim back to the reef and settle. In this case, the evolutionary advantage is that there's a signal between the reef, the mother reef, if you like, and the larva, enabling the larva to come back and settle on the reef to find their way home. It's not only that we don't know they're making these sounds. Because we can't hear it, we can misinterpret, easily misinterpret what they're doing. And I think of the peacock, which I I learned about in your book. I had always thought that the display of the male feathers was a visual signal. But it isn't. It's a sound thing, right? They're broadcasting sound like with a big... uh, A big antenna. Indeed. So, you know, that famous mating display, the beautiful fanned out feathers of the male peacock, because we're humans and we privilege sight over sound, we assumed it was a visual display. But in fact, scientists recently found out the male peacocks are making infrasonic sound below our hearing range. If you could hear it, it would sound kind of like a revving car engine, quite loud. And they're making that sound to attract the peahens. Not only that, the sound is at a particular frequency that vibrates. So peacocks have this funny little comb on top of their heads. 
Yeah. That that the frequency they're vibrating at will will vibrate the little comb of the male peacock, but vibrate the little comb on the peahen's head as well. The peahens do look at the tail and the beauty and luster of the feathers will uh-huh. influence their mate choice, but the sound is super important as well. And it, the biomechanics of the tail act kind of like of a like a resonator. You can kind of look at the shape and see that, right? So they're they're yeah. actually uh, if you like amplifying the sound. It's a little like a satellite dish. That's right. They're, they're doing a rock concert, you know. Do they want groupies? <laughs> they want fans. <laughs> the ability to distinguish in a fine-tuned way, talking in your book as you do about elephants using different calls for warnings, a, a bee sighting or danger from a bee, mm-hmm. and humans... Mm-hmm. And, and completely different call. That's it. It's like a, it's like a whole c- category that that they're communicating about. Yeah, this is some wonderful research done by Lucy King in East Africa. So elephants, it turns out, of course, elephants are master communicators in the infrasound, that deep sound that travels across long distances. Uh, it's one of the. How, how long does it travel? Oh, it can dozens of miles. And scientists also think that elephants can hear. Um, thunderstorms and maybe sense the presence of water at very great distances using these Mm. sounds. So they have this uncanny ability, elephants, to travel across long distances of the savannah and coordinate their movements. They're using infrasound to do that. Um, So we already knew they had a lot of communicative capacity, but only in the past few years have researchers begun to decode individual vocalizations that are analogous to human words. So Elephants have a very specific sound for honeybee. Now, elephants are terrified of honeybees. It's the one thing that will make them run because honeybees can get into their ears and their trunks and sting. And it's very odd to think, but the tiny um, honeybee can terrify the mighty African elephant. So they've got a very specific alarm call. And if you do a playback experiment playing the sound of a honeybee, and if there are no bees around, the elephants will display all of their defensive behaviors, getting in a small group. You know, they'll come running from long distances away, showering each other with dust, retreating as fast as they can. But if they see another kind of threat, they'll make a different noise. So if they see a hunter, there's a specific, a human hunter, there's a specific noise for that. And what's quite cool in Lucy King's work is they were able to detect using um, spectrograms, digital bioacoustics, and some artificial intelligence, they were able to detect that elephants have a specific sound for a threatening human, a hunter, a non-threatening human, someone who's not out there hunting them, and even they distinguish between genders, between men and women and children. So they've got a great specificity in their vocalizations to describe the environment around them and communicate that information to one another. So this sounds awfully close to language. Is it thought by the researchers you've talked to that this is a kind of language? Or is it just an expression of something that is is not what we think of as language? So it depends on your definition of language. I mean, if a lot of the researchers avoid this debate altogether. So they talk about information and communication. It's clear Complex information is being communicated between sender and receiver that leads to behavioral change. That's the kind of neutral scientific language that is used. I would say that the difference is a difference of degree rather than of kind. And the more we Mm. discover about these languages, um, the more we discover 
similarities like complex combinatorial um, syntax in primates. The big question is whether animals have um, highly abstract symbolic aspects in their language, like numerical competence. And we're just beginning to design experiments to test this. There's some, a really interesting mm. researcher in Germany named Mirjam Knorzschild, and she has this experiment where you have a, a kind of iPad or a touchscreen-like device that bats can touch with their acoustic beam, like their sonar. Mm. And with that, you could start testing for some of the more abstract symbolic components that we think of as higher-level language. Symbolic communication aside, it seems clear, many more animals have much more complex communication than we had previously understood. And this means that we're opening the door to understanding their behaviors in a much deeper way and also potentially breaking the barrier of interspecies communication. Yeah, that's really interesting. Interspecies communication, does that point as far as one day a possible two-way conversation? Or is that is that just fantasy? So it's not fantasy, and we've already achieved two-way communication with some species using the, these technologies. How far we'll go is still unknown. But let me give you an example of something we've already achieved. To underscore the point, this is no longer science fiction. This is actually science. The example I'll give is that of Tim Landgraf. He's a researcher in Berlin. He's been studying honeybees for years. He's a computer scientist. Honeybees are very interesting for computer scientists because of quorum sensing, because of swarm behavior that is actually many applications um, in computer science. So one of the things Tim does is he monitors honeybee hives using computer vision, you know, three, four million bee movements all in these huge data sets. He also listens to the honeybees using digital recorders to record them. And of course, you can overlay the bioacoustic information with the computer vision information. And what you get is a data set that correlates behavior with vocalizations. Now, this is really complex because honeybees have a language that is vibrational and positional as well as acoustic. So they make a buzzing sound. We can hear that. But also they orient their bodies to the position of the sun because they can see polarized light. And they also orient their bodies to the position of gravity. Their abdomens have six degrees of freedom. Lots of stuff going on. But the, you know, the AI is pretty powerful. It can decode that. And Tim Landgraf then took the next step of the several hundred individual vocalizations that we have now decoded from honeybee language he has encoded some of those back into a honeybee robot. The robot goes into the hive and it can tell the honeybees what to do. For example, you can see the video online. The honeybee robot goes into the hive. It tells the bees to stop moving. They stop. The honeybee robot... Oh, wait, yes. get, out, get out of town. No, it does. The honeybee <laughs> robot goes into the hive and does that classic waggle dance. It's a very complicated figure eight pattern that encodes distance and direction to a nectar source. And the honeybee robot tells the honeybees where to go find a new nectar source they didn't previously know. That might involve, you know, flying around corners, flying over buildings, flying over mountaintops. And they go, they leave they go the there. hive and they go oh. there. So we have broken the barrier of interspecies communication with honeybees. Perhaps you might consider this rudimentary, but we're only at the beginning. And we now know we have dictionaries, similar dictionaries in East African elephant, in dolphin. Researchers are working on dictionaries for sperm 
Whalish, a very different language. It sounds a lot like Morse code. So they're bat. We have hundreds of vocalizations we now know are associated with behaviors in bat. And we're also at the brink of two-way communication using robots with bats. So this is no longer in the realm of science fiction. This is science. When we come back from our break, Karen Bacher tells me how listening and even responding to the sounds of nature can help heal some of the damage that we're doing to it. This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is to stimulate scientific research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience to strengthen the relationship between science and society, and to honor scientific discoveries with the Kavli Prize. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Karen Bakker. We've been talking about the amazing research that's beginning to allow two-way conversations between us and other animals. It sounds at the same time wonderful and a little scary because you can trick animals that way into captivity to exploit them even further than we're now doing. If you can call on whales to come sidle up to your boat so you can have a better shot at them, that's not such a good thing. How do you hope to handle that? You're absolutely right that this technology could be used as a tool for conservation or a weapon. It's a really active debate in the scientific community. And I should add, these data sets are not publicly available yet. You could imagine them being used for precision hunting or domesticating or exploiting species. And I know the researchers hope that won't happen. What they do hope is that the ability to converse with non-humans creates a sense of empathy that spurs action for biodiversity conservation. And there's some practical tools I'll give you examples of that are already out there and working and doing amazing things. I'll give you two examples. The first example is that of music therapy for nature. So a couple of researchers in England, Steve Simpson and Tim Gordon have been working on the Great Barrier Reef for years. We all know about the massive degradation of coral reefs that's so tragic worldwide, partly due to climate change. Um, What they did is they put speakers on degraded reefs and played the sounds of healthy reefs, attracting curious fish and coral larvae to the reefs, encouraging them to settle, and accelerating the recovery of degraded coral reefs. 
So music therapy or acoustic enrichment, as they call it, works, works pretty well. It's not going to save all of the world's coral reefs, but what it could do is be another tool in the toolkit for triage. Scientists are out there right now trying to, you know, conserve dozens or hundreds of coral reefs to make sure a few survive. And it's, it's something very positive for the reefs. The second example is even cooler, I think. Um, this has to do with whales. One of the major causes of whale death is being hit by ships. One of the most endangered whale populations in the world lives off the east coast of North America. The, the right whale, the North Atlantic right whales, there are only about 400 of them left. They were overhunted, and um, after the end of industrial whaling, that population never really recovered. And they've got other problems to deal with because with climate change and the warming of the ocean waters off the coast of Maine a few years ago, their main food source, copepods, disappeared. Habitat was no longer right for their food. So the right whales became climate refugees and they moved north uh, into the Gulf of St. Lawrence. Lots of food, you know, big river flowing into the ocean, lots of nutrient upwelling, great choice for a new home, except that it's one of the busiest shipping areas in the world. And it's like trying to have a buffet lunch on a 12-lane highway. Lots of the whales were getting hit by ships. And there was real concern that this would be an end to, to that species. So then this wonderful researcher named Kimberly Davis, a bioacoustician at the University of New Brunswick, used bioacoustics to protect the whales from being hit. How did she do it? So Kimberly runs this great network of acoustic underwater drones. They, they glide around listening for whales. They can triangulate the location of whales in real time with a high degree of precision and accuracy. The location of the whales is then communicated to ship's captains in real time. And the government has set up a new framework where if there is a a sound of a whale in a particular area, all fishing activity has to stop and ships have to slow down and get out of the way. If they don't, there's a $250,000 fine. And so once this system was implemented in 2019, since then there have been no ship strikes of whales documented for the past three years. And this may be the thing that saves the whales. Now, I want you to imagine this. This is a population of 400 whales controlling the movements of tens of thousands of ships in a watershed of 45 million people, like whale lanes in the ocean that take priority over shipping lanes. And now they're doing something similar on the coast of California. They're doing something similar for turtles in Hawaii, something similar for tuna in Australia. So scaled up, this could really make a difference for endangered species in the oceans around the world. I'm really interested in your notion of eco-acoustics, where you get a sense of the health of the entire landscape. How does that work? So this isn't my notion, by the way. This is the work of a fabulous set of researchers who for decades have been working on developing techniques to listen to soundscapes. And soundscapes are the sounds produced by entire landscapes. You think of a, a tropical forest, you might hear a waterfall, a stream, birds chirping, snakes slithering. This recording was made by Mark Anderson, an Australian who's made some beautiful recordings of wildlife all over the world. This recording is a rainforest in Sarawak in Borneo at midnight. <laughs> 
we can tell a lot about the health of ecosystems just by listening. In fact, we can learn a lot more than by looking. I like to say a camera can only see an animal walking down the forest path, but a microphone can hear them hiding in the bushes. <laughs> so with these technologies, we have actually discovered entirely new species. Scientists discovered an entirely new species of blue whale deep in the Indian Ocean this way, revealed by their unique vocalizations. We've also discovered individual places where species we thought that had gone extinct were actually still alive. They were just hiding. And now that we know they're there by listening to their vocalizations, we can do a better job at protecting them. So soundscapes tell us an enormous amount about ecosystem health. In fact, we can make spectrograms that are like visual printouts of the frequencies of sound in these places. And an ecoacoustician can look at these images a bit like a radiologist would look at at an X-ray or an MRI scan, and they can literally read ecosystem health off of these spectrograms, revealing an enormous amount about their condition and what we need to do to protect them. Is it something like, let's say, an X-ray that shows you what is there where it's supposed to be and something that's broken where it shouldn't be? A little bit like that. Soundscapes are normally in a healthy ecosystem, very diverse and rich and full because animals evolve to occupy different acoustic niches. Frogs mm -hmm. might be chirping in the very high frequencies, you know, the hippopotamus at a lower frequency. And in a, a, a healthy ecosystem, nearly every acoustic niche is filled. But in a degraded ecosystem, there are just lots of blank spots. As, mm. as, as ecosystems get less healthy, they get more quiet. And these images of the soundscapes just have lots of blank spots. And that's how you can tell that the health of the ecosystem is kind of ebbing because its sounds are ebbing and simplifying. We're into an area now where we're not simply talking about individual animals or, or other forms of life, but the whole, the whole caboodle. And I get the impression that your project, the Smart Earth Project, is dealing with the interconnectivity of all these sounds and what they mean for the health of the life itself and what they mean for the health of the whole planet. Can you tell me more about the Smart Earth idea? What, what is it trying to do and how does it do it? The Smart Earth Project is a research initiative which seeks to explore how digital technologies the tools of the digital age might help us address some of the most pressing problems of our time, be it biodiversity loss, which we've just been talking about, or climate change. You know, digital technologies are often associated with alienation from nature, but could they reconnect us instead? The Sounds of Life, as a book, explores how we could reconnect uh, through practices of listening out in nature, being a citizen scientist, doing sound walks, listening for all these cool sounds. These technologies are now available to individuals. You could, I hope you do, order an audio moth. It's a DIY open source technology online. Build one yourself for less than a hundred bucks. You too could be out listening. These are profound technologies that are accessible to all of us. But beyond that, I think there is a very important challenge we all face. The coming era is one of enormous digital transformation and environmental change. The two great exponential 
changes of our time. And they're intimately interrelated. We know that the global internet, the largest physical infrastructure that humanity has ever built, is now one of the largest electricity consumers on the planet. And if left unchecked with video streaming, with 2 billion more people coming online in the next couple of decades, it will be the single largest energy user on the planet, itself an enormous contributor to climate change. If we can't sort out how our digital technologies are more sustainable from a climate perspective and a biodiversity perspective, the future looks pretty dim. So the Smartest Project takes that big view of the Earth system as one in which we are, in you know, inextricably linked to not only ecosystems, but digital systems and tries to chart a more sustainable path. A fetching place to end our conversation. We're running out of time. But we always end every program with seven quick questions. Are you game? They're, they're roughly to do with communication. I'm up for it. You have very wide interests, so this first question doesn't necessarily apply to what we've been talking about, or it could. What do you wish you really understood? I wish I really understood how the simplest of organisms without central nervous systems are nonetheless able to detect and respond to sound. There's something primordial about their ability to do this that we have not yet figured out. And if we could unlock it, I think we'd know a lot more about ourselves um, and the history of life on Earth. Second question, how do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? The ground of respectful dialogue about the facts for me is the, the scientific experiments that offer empirical evidence in favor of a certain claim. I think in a world of misinformation and disinformation, it's all too easy to offer opinion instead of fact. Um, in the book, The Sounds of Life, I talk about scientists as heroes who are going out and testing these different ideas empirically and returning to the science in a cordial way to discuss the findings that the scientists have brought to us is, I think, the best way forward to, you know, decide what, what facts are the ones we all agree on. Next. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? The strangest question anyone has ever asked me? Hmm. Pass, and we'll come back to it, because I don't want to waste your oh. time. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Yawning sometimes <laughs> helps. I actually had someone do that to me once. <laughs> When I was when I was guilty of compulsively talking. I my family is Dutch and the Dutch are compulsive interrupters that are given to radical candor. So if <laughs> yawning doesn't work, that's the polite tactic, then you get a you know, compulsively interrupt and see where that gets you. Let's say you're at a dinner party and you're next to someone you've never met before. How do you strike up a genuine conversation? I tend to go for the jugular and <laughs> Ask people a very authentic, radical candor question that gets us beyond the superficial banter and, you know, opens them up to talking about something that really matters to them. Well, that's fascinating. What's, what would be an example of that? Mm, 
also if you know if they if they mention they're married i ask them how did you meet your spouse uh, or i might ask them you know what's something that really made you angry or made you sad or made you happy in the past couple of days and why ah good that, that's sure to start a conversation what gives you confidence my family i have two beautiful daughters and a wonderful husband and um just um, a sense that there's a lot of responsibility to my family and also to my students. I teach 200 students a year. I teach on environmental sustainability. Every year, the data gets worse and the picture gets more grim. Young people today have a lot of climate anxiety and ecological grief. And I guess what gives me confidence or or the desire, the will to keep doing this work is a sense of obligation to be the kind of elder or ancestor that future generations need us to be. Final question. What book changed your life? Thomas Moore wrote a very beautiful book called Care of the Soul, which is now 30 years old, but is still worth reading. And it talks about the everyday actions that we can cultivate to bring a sense of calm and grace and beauty and groundedness into our busy lives. And in these troubled times, I think care of the soul is ever more important. That's great. This has been such a re really interesting conversation for me. Thank I, you I'm so, so much. glad. But wait, 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 that question about uh, oh, what was oh, the most okay. surprising question, I thought of something. Oh, great. Oh, you were thinking while talking. That's mm -hmm. hard to do. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. So, so ask me the question again. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Once at a dinner party, someone turned to me in front of a big group of people and said, what's your favorite piece of poetry? Can you recite it out loud for us? And I was so taken aback. And then out of my mouth came a little snippet from Emily Dickinson. There's a certain slant of light, winter afternoons, that oppresses like the heft of cathedral tunes. Heavenly hurt it gives us, yet leaves no scar, but internal difference where the meanings are. You know, I never got such a full answer to that question. That's great. Thank you so much, Karen. I'm so happy I got to speak to you, Alan. Like I said, there's a funny history about, <laughs> about me seeing you as a very special person on TV. Mm -hmm. And so my husband thought it was so funny that I was going to get to talk to you today. And I'm just <laughs> thrilled to be on your podcast. Thank you so much. Well, you well, take care. You too. Say hello to your husband for me. <laughs> I will say hello to your wife for me. Okay. Keep doing the good work. This has been Clear and Vivid, at least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep Clear and Vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Karen Bakker is a professor in the Geography Department of the University of British Columbia. Currently, she's on sabbatical leave at the Harvard Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Studies, where she's focusing on her Smart Earth Project. Her new book is The Sounds of Life. The rainforest soundscape was recorded by Mark Anderson, 
whose website is wildambience.com. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth O'Haney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Pamela Adlon. She's the producer, writer, director, and star of the hit show, Better Things. The biggest thing that I learned when I took over my show and, you know, started running my crew and being a director, everybody needs you to be able to make a a decision. And that became my superpower. So I went from, you know, being home with my daughters who were like, get out of here and not listening to me. And I'd be like, oh my God, all these people are listening to me. That's, that's their job. Pamela Adlon, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alden. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.